0: Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Then the demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that Jesus be with him, that he might be with Jesus, excuse me, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us and preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it. Lord, we've heard it read in a language we're familiar with. We have physical hearing and somewhat physical understanding, but we pray, God, for more than that. We pray that you would open, uh, Lord, just open the eyes of our heart. Lord, help us to see wondrous things in your law. By your spirit, would you teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh, God, make us more like Jesus. I pray for your people. I pray, Lord, that uh, their hearts would be receptive uh, to your word by the work of the Holy Spirit in them. And I pray, O oh God, that you would help me by your spirit. Lord, that you would protect me from error. Lord, I pray most of all that you would be honored and glorified and that we would stand in awe of you for you indeed are a great savior. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1950s, when Christian Herter was the governor of Massachusetts, he was campaigning hard for what could be a second term. And one day after a busy morning of chasing down votes, he arrived at a church's cookout. It was late afternoon and he hadn't eaten yet that day, so he was famished. As he moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman who was serving chicken. She put one piece on it and then turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, excuse me, the governor said, do you mind if I have a second piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman replied. I'm only to give one piece of chicken to each person who comes through the line, but I'm starving. Sorry, sir, again, she said, only one piece per person. Now, Governor Herder was a modest and unassuming man by all accounts, but he decided that this time he would throw a little bit of weight around. I guess his stomach got the best of him. He looked at her and he said, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state and I want a second piece of chicken. Politely, yet firmly, the woman replied to him, do you know who I am? He looked at her. She goes, I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move on, mister. <laughs> we live in a world full of and familiar with authority. Some of that authority is earned. Some of it is given. Some of it is taken and even assumed But as the former Massachusetts governor learned, none of it is absolute. None of it is absolute. Absolute authority resides solely with God, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God's absolute authority is expressed in his eternal decrees. His authority is expressed in his works of providence. And his authority is expressed in his will that is revealed to us in the scriptures, in his word. And of course, we get a glimpse. We get to see the absolute authority of God exercised in the person and work of Jesus Christ right here in the gospel according to Luke. We've witnessed this. We've seen the absolute authority of Jesus thus far over the physical realm many times from the healing of the sick to the raising of the dead, to even the calming of the raging seas. Remember that from last week? He's even able to command the seas. And now as we come to our passage this morning, Luke wants us to see the absolute authority of Jesus over the spiritual realm, the absolute authority of Jesus over not just the spiritual forces of evil, but as we'll see, over the forceful power of sin itself. So let's begin our study of this passage together by first considering the wretched condition of sin. If you're taking notes, this is our first of three points this morning the wretched condition of sin. You'll recall from verse 22 that Jesus had gotten into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake or the sea of Galilee. And he said he wants to go there to the other side. And if you remember, once they were in the boat, that's when this terrible storm happens. And you can read the verses prior to see what happens. But as soon as that storm is calmed and the boat sails, where does it go? Look at verse 26. It goes to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So they made it to the other side. Jesus has stepped foot into largely Gentile territory. And immediately after stepping out of the boat, he's met by a man, a man with a wretched condition. Luke describes the man this way. Notice he says, a man from the city who had demons. Further, if you keep looking, Luke describes his humiliation, in verse 27, look there, for a long time he had worn no clothes. He was naked. Luke also describes his isolation. In verse 27, he says he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So he lived in the graveyard. Look in verse 29, he was driven by the demon into the desert. So he's isolated. And Luke finally describes his subjection. Look at verse 29 said he was often kept under guard and bound with chain and shackles. We see his humiliation, his isolation, his subjection. And both Matthew and Mark include this account in their gospels. And Matthew, over in 828, actually talks about his reign of terror. He says that this man was so fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay, So the picture is people would come that way, perhaps to visit the tomb of a loved one, and this demonic man would rage at them and come after them. And so they would bind him in shackles and chains, but it wouldn't help because eventually, as Luke tells us, he would break free from that and continue his reign of terror. The early church father, Cyril of Alexandria, describes uh, the same man this way, and I'll read what he said, it's a short quote. In great misery and nakedness, he wandered among the graves of the dead. He was in utter wretchedness, leading a disgraceful life, deprived of every blessing, destitute of all sobriety, and entirely deprived even of reason. This indeed is a wretched man. In fact, the, this man whom Jesus comes face to face with is nearly the is suffering from what might be the worst condition that anyone could ever imagine. As I said before, he's naked, he's lonely, he's violent, he's insane, he's walking among the dead. Yet even for all his misery, and I'm sure you've pictured it in your mind already, right? You can just see how terrible this man would be. Let me ask you this. Can you see a little bit of yourself in his situation? And you're like, what? (laughs) No. What effect does sin have upon us? Even those of us who are in Christ. Does not sin have similar effects? Let me explain. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sin can leave us exposed in nakedness. For them, it was actual literal nakedness. But for us today, it's what? It's guilt and shame. Sin can leave us exposed, feeling vulnerable in our guilt and our shame. Sin can alienate us from one another. It can leave us estranged from the blessings of community. I'm ashamed of myself, so how could I show my face with those people? Sin can cause us to try and run away and hide from God. People do that. Sin can deceive us into thinking that I just need to get away get out of the sight of God and take care of this on my own. I got this, I can handle it, that's deceitful. And sin can make us violent. If not in our actions, not all sin is active violence, but it certainly is in our attitudes. We can begin to curse God. We can begin to curse the things of God. We can begin to turn our backs on him. Spiritually speaking, sin can leave even us walking among the dead. And while this is certainly true for those of us who are uh, fighting faithfully that battle against uh, the the flesh and sin and the devil, right? Um, Are you doing that? You're actively fighting a battle? I know you are, even if you won't admit it. If you're in Christ, you're striving to abide in him, but it is still a war. We're all fighting this war. Do you see then how those effects show up in your life? But now think for a moment for all those people outside of Christ. See how much more it's magnified even in them, those who are not abiding in him. So even if we don't see it for ourselves, perhaps we've been blinded to it. It is there. The effects of sin touches us all. So then I think that we should think about this madman in the graveyard as a picture. He's a picture for us, a vivid picture of what I've called the wretched condition of sin. But in the case of this demoniac, his wretched condition is not his permanent condition. For his wretched condition is about to come face to face with the absolute authority of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, that's our second point this morning, the absolute authority of Jesus. Look again at verse 28. I want you to look there and see his response again When he comes to Jesus, when he saw Jesus, it says, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. If we wonder where that response comes from, if you look in verse 29, Luke clarifies for us that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. Jesus notices right away, this, this man is possessed, right? And so he tells the spirit to come out and notice how this demonic spirit responds. He bows the knee. He confesses that he's Jesus, <laughs> the most high God, right? The son of the most high God. He knows who he is. Jesus, he recognizes demonic oppression and The demons oppressing him certainly recognize Jesus. Now you'll see in the text, and even I have said demon and demons, right? We're kind of like thinking, well, what is it? Well, notice when Jesus asked for the name, look at the name that comes, Legion. The devil, the demon, the demon's name is Legion. Luke helpfully notes that he has this name because many demons had entered him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many demons there were, but we can do some deduction here, okay? Uh, In the Roman military, a legion consisted of up to 6,000 soldiers. So, we can say there must have been thousands. In fact, we can actually say there must be around 2,000 at least, if the number of pigs are any indication. You're looking at your I don't see that, but if you turn to Mark 5.13, which you don't have to right now, you can look later, but Mark talks about that herd of pigs and says it numbered almost 2,000. So there's this herd of 2,000 pigs. We know what happens next. Everybody's like, I can't wait till Pastor Ann gets to that whole big thing. Legion, many, thousands. I mean, this is mind-blowing, right? I mean, it's hard enough for us in 21st century Western culture to acknowledge demonic possession anyway, right? And now to think that this man is possessed with thousands of demons within him? Well, God's word is true and every word of it is true. And this man is possessed with a legion of demons. It might be unbelievable to our sensibilities, but it is believable because this is the absolute word of God. So to keep things in perspective, let's talk about demons for just a moment. What are demons? Demons are fallen angels. They were created for the glory of God like all the angels. However, these demons have followed Satan in his rebellion and they live to torment the children of man. Demonic activity seems to have been especially prevalent during the times of Christ. Perhaps this is because Satan had turned all his evil energies against that immediate territory where the Messiah was actually roaming the earth. Let's let's put our forces right there and I'll go right there. In fact, the, the great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, wondered whether Satan, the chief counterfeiter himself, had, and this is Spurgeon's quote, he wondered if Satan had witnessed the incarnation and was trying to imitate it by sending demons to inhabit people in the flesh. Either way, it was prevalent. It was happening a lot in the days of Jesus. And it still happens today. Where does it happen? It happens primarily where the gospel is moving into new areas. As the gospel goes forth, so do the forces of evil to combat it. Now, I know some of you, you have trouble. You have trouble thinking about and processing a world that is full of spiritual evil, but it's there. You must recognize it. Uh, And you must recognize the impact of the spiritual forces of evil on our world. And whether that impact comes from demonic possession like we see here and like we don't see much of here in the U.S., it does come by demonic oppression. What do I mean by that? It's the influence, the influence of Satan, the influence of the demons upon cultures and societies. And you don't have to look far to see that here. We must recognize it and we could spend the next 20 minutes just talking about all the specific examples of it, but why would we? Because even though it's there and even though we're called to recognize it, here's the most important thing we need to know about the spiritual forces of evil. They are not victors. They will not win. The devil and his minions are an already defeated army. Even their authority is counterfeit for their authority is not absolute. Even they must lay down their authority at the feet of the absolute authority of Jesus. And isn't that what Legion does in verse 28? He bows the knee, they bow the knee, whatever pronouns Legion is using, he bows the knee to Jesus. And he begs him to do what? Did you catch it? Not to command them to depart into the abyss. What's the abyss? The abyss is the place of the dead. You can go to the book of Revelation chapter 20. It's described there as the bottomless pit, the place where Satan will be condemned. It is the very pit of hell itself. The demons know that that is their final doom as well. They know that Jesus will ultimately defeat their rebellion. He's already crushed the head of Satan. It's already bound Satan in one sense. There at the cross. There will be final and full defeat. And they know that they will be cast into a terrible place of everlasting torment. And so what do they do? They tremble with fear. I find it very interesting in our 21st century Western sensibilities that there's a lot of people who don't believe in hell, but guess who does? Demons. Demons believe in hell. Many people don't believe in Jesus, but guess who does? Even demons believe in shudder. James even tells us that in his letter. So Legion falls at the feet of Jesus and begs them in fear. They know that they have collided with the absolute authority of Jesus and they know they have no power over him. So before moving on to the pig stuff, before moving on, I think it'd be good for us to remember this. Satan is powerless before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's influential, harmful, but ultimately powerless. Even more, your sin is powerless before the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, We do indeed experience the power of sin. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25, summarizes it well, and I'll read part of it. It says that sin leaves us, quote, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil. But the good news is the Lord Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin. And he sets us free from our bondage to it. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to take comfort. Take comfort in the truth that there is no sin so powerful that you cannot be set free from it. Do you believe that? There's no sin that grabs a hold of your identity and takes part of your identity away from Jesus Christ if you are abiding in him. No. No. There's no sin that Jesus cannot set you free from. Maybe another way to say it is there's no stronghold on your life that cannot be ripped apart by the power of the cross, none. So what do we do? We take our sin and we cast it at the feet of Jesus. The only one who can deliver us from all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our sorrow, we confess our sins to Jesus And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what, Christians, you keep doing that. So I have a prayer of confession when we come together for worship. We continue to do that. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're apart from Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, even today, even today, you can throw your sin at the foot of Jesus. Throw it at his feet confess your sins. Cry out to him to save you. And so this brings us then to our third and final point this morning, and I've called it the transforming grace of the gospel. The transforming grace of the gospel. So I'll admit, the story in front of us gets a little weird, doesn't it? Some of you have maybe heard a million sermons on this, so you've got it all figured out, right? Uh, It gets a little weird in verse 32. You see, after the demons begged him not to send them into the abyss... It's very interesting. Jesus obliges. He hears them and he answers them in the affirmative. Why? Because it's not time for that. That comes at the last day. It's not time for that. Rather, he answers their own request and make no mistake, they're the ones who asked. It's easy to overlook that in your text. They're the ones that asked to go into the pigs. And so he says, okay. And he sends them into a herd of pigs who do what? they subsequently rush down the steep bank into the lake and they drown. Perhaps 2,000, as Mark tells us. That's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's so many questions. I mean, I had a few I wrote down. How can animals be possessed by demons? How is that even possible? Or how about why would Jesus allow such a use of animals? We can talk about the, the Jewish-Gentile distinction and treatment of pigs and that. What happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? That question even came up at the breakfast table in my house this morning. Hey, you probably can't answer this because the text doesn't tell us, but what happened to the demons? I'm like, well, the text doesn't tell us. I don't know. Here's here's one. Why did the demons even feel compelled to dwell in the pigs and drown themselves rather than just go back to roaming the earth and finding someone else to torment? So many questions, but I love this. No answers. No answers. It's okay, it's really okay. I'm not a spiritual guru, are you? I don't have all the answers that the Bible doesn't tell us. One of my favorite pastors and commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, he says this, and I believe it's with tongue firmly planted in cheek. I'll quote, the local chapter of people for the ethical treatment of animals might be upset, but the Bible is silent about these sudden swine suicides. Another one of my favorite commentators, Philip Riken, uh, he says this, and then this is, I'll land on this. These pigs lived and died for the glory of God. These fine swine, he says, are the most famous pigs in history. What other herd of pigs can claim to have demonstrated the divine power of Jesus Christ over the darkest powers of hell? Good job, pigs. Good job. Take note though, how the people respond to this extraordinary exorcism. I believe that their response is just as important as the miracle itself. And often we miss it because we're so focused on the pigs. First of all, I want you to notice the pig farmers and the people of the land in verses 34 through 47. When they hear what happens and they come out to see that former madman sitting at the feet of Jesus, what's their response? They're afraid. I mean, wouldn't you be? They're afraid. And verse 37 amplifies this and says that they are seized with great fear. They're they're not just afraid, they're really afraid. They're really, really afraid. They go as far as to ask Jesus to leave. Get out of here. Get out of here, Jesus. We don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. Even when faced with a miracle as clear as this one, what do they do? They reject Jesus. They're afraid of his absolute power and his absolute authority. They're afraid of his ability to change someone's life in ways that they cannot even begin to understand. Perhaps most of all, they were afraid of what Jesus would change in their own lives if they let him stay around any longer. I mean, surely some of them are pretty upset about their pigs. But everyone there I think the question that was facing them is if those guys were called to give up such a large herd of pigs, what else might we be asked to let go of? What else might I have to give up? You know anyone like that? You know anyone that maybe is close to you and You love to testify about the power of Jesus that changes your life. You love to talk about God's word. You love to talk about answered prayer. You love to sing praises everywhere you go. You just can't stop talking about Jesus. You love going to church and fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters. And you would think that, man, this is, I'm a magnet. People are gonna see this and they're gonna love it. And instead they're like, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with that. You're crazy. What's gotten into you? I've known many people like that, people very close to me. It's hard, it's hurtful. That happens sometimes, even in the face of irrefutable evidence that Jesus is at work, especially here. They're like, nope, we don't want any of him. Keep that in mind when somebody says, if Jesus would just do this, then I would believe. Well, he did that even when he was on earth and people didn't believe. Now contrast their response with that of the man who had been set free. Where was he found when all these people returned? Where was he? According to verse 35, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it says he's clothed in his right mind. You see, he's no longer alone and isolated. He's coming back into community. He's also, it says fully clothed. And I would say he's fully clothed physically and spiritually. I mean, previously he was wandering around naked without any sense of modesty or decency. But now he's not only wearing clothes, but he's now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And he's in his right mind. His mind is being renewed in the grace and knowledge of the truth. He's experiencing the transforming grace of the gospel. And I want you to notice also that he wants to go with Jesus. You see it there in verses 38 and 39. He wants to go with him. Let me go with you, Jesus. I wanna leave everything behind and follow you. The unbelieving people of the land begged Jesus to leave them and their request was granted. He's like, okay, I'm gone. But the believing man from whom the demons had departed asked that he might be with Jesus and his request is denied. It doesn't make sense. Jesus continues to baffle us. I think it teaches us clearly that there is more than one way in which to serve Jesus. Sometimes it's to get in the boat and go with him, right? And sometimes our place is staying right where we are and bearing witness precisely where we are to those whom God has called us to be in community with. This man's call, as Jesus tells him, is to tell everyone, look what God has done. See how much God has done. Reminds me of a story that came from a man by the name of Rick McClellan. He was an Australian missionary and he shared a story about Christians in Ethiopia. And it goes like this. He said, there were a number of evangelists from the uh, Walaita tribe in Southwestern Ethiopia who uh, wanted to take the gospel to the tribes in another region. It's called the Gopha region. Uh, the men moved their families to Gofa. They rented land. They built houses. They planted crops. They befriended their new neighbors and they told them about Jesus. They shared the gospel with them. And some, praise God, received the Savior. They were able to build some churches and worship began on the Lord's Day regularly. But too many changes took place too quickly. Converts to the way to to Jesus no longer frequented the witch doctors. Converts no longer paid the priest tax to the orthodox priests. And converts no longer slipped bribes to government officials for favors. So one day a police lieutenant arrested one of those prominent evangelists whose name was Atero. And he chained his wrists together and he clamped his ankles together in these really heavy iron rings so that all he could do was hop, he couldn't even walk. And he took him to the busy market and he paraded him in front of the crowd and he was sending a message that this is what will happen to any of the so-called new disciples of the new religion. And then at the end of this parade in the sight of all and the hearing of all, the lieutenant commanded a tarot this. He said, go back to Welita and take your Jesus with you. We don't want your Jesus here. There's some silence. People were wondering if a tarot would reply, and he did. He hopped forward, and this is what he said. Oh, sir, listen. Please listen. I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and souls, of the Gopha converts. I can go and I will, but Jesus will stay. I can go, but Jesus will stay. That is the gracious defiance of the transforming grace of the gospel to the principalities of this world. And it's also Jesus' protocol in the life of this man who has been transformed. One commentator says this, he says, "'It is in fact the supreme irony. "'Jesus can go, but Jesus will stay, "'because there is loose in the territory "'of the Gerasenes a demon-deprived evangelist "'who cannot stop talking about all that Jesus "'has done for him.'" Jesus can go, but Jesus will stay. Look, I understand you may not have been set free from a legion of demons. Anybody here been set free from a legion of demons? But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been set free. You have been set free from the power of sin, from the power of the flesh, from the power of the devil. And our call, it's your call and my call, it remains the same. Go and tell everyone just how much God has done in your life. That must be the takeaway from this passage. Go and tell others of all the good things that God has done in your life. Will you do that? Will you keep doing it? Will you maybe even do it for the first time? May God help us, amen and amen.